We're going to uh, continue in Romans today. This will be the last time because we'll be going into our, our Christmas series after uh, this morning. So we're going to pray, uh, read from Romans chapter 7, and we're going to read from verse 1. So that's Romans chapter 7, and reading from verse 1. And Paul says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by our sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code." What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what the law was, what, what sin was, except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seeing the opportunity afforded by the commandments, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, Sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what, for what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. 
When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I in myself and my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. That's what you call a meaty passage. Okay, let's just pray together. Father, we just want to thank you that you do teach us through your word and that you want us to understand and to apply that word to our lives, to live out its truth. So, Father, we ask, give us understanding today. Help us to be clear in our minds and then faithful in our living. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a a widely recorded and accepted fact that that Western nations during the Second World War found many of the the attitudes and actions of, of the Japanese military hard to understand and accept. One being, simple, their refusal to surrender. For example, of the 23 Japanese troops on Iwo Jima when American forces attacked, 21,000 were killed, 1,800 seriously wounded, and only 200 captured. 200. And then the way that the Japanese forces treated those that they themselves had captured. Well, many of us know the stories and have seen the pictures of what to us were terrible acts of barbaric cruelty perpetrated on Allied prisoners. The underlying problem, though, here, I believe, is largely one of a clash of cultures. That's the problem. And particularly, it's to do with the the Japanese warrior code of Bushido, which, among other things, treats that the greatest shame of all is for a man, for a soldier, to surrender. That it's always better, without exception, for a soldier to die rather than surrender. Now, Japanese boys prior to the Second World War, they were indoctrinated, fed this way of thinking from a very early age. So their point of view then, and this is neither an attack or a defense, it's just a statement of fact. From their perspective, a soldier who had surrendered had dishonored themselves, and by so doing, had lost all rights and privileges. And just how ingrained this code actually was, I think, is well illustrated by the story of a Lieutenant Hero Anada. Now, he was stationed in Lubang Island in the Philippines when it was overrun by U.S. forces in February 1945. And typically, most of the Japanese troops there were killed and just a very few captured. But Anada and several of his men, they escaped into the jungle interior that covered this island. Now, the others were eventually killed, but Anada held out. 
the war finished, and so the authorities tried to coax him out. They told him the war was over and that Japan had been defeated, and he refused to believe this. He wrote it off as enemy propaganda, and this went on for 29 years until finally the Japanese government managed to locate the man who'd been his direct commanding officer in 1945. And in 1974, he was sent back to the island to order an adult give up. The lieutenant stepped out of the jungle in obedience to that order in his dress uniform and sword and with his rifle still in perfect working order. But isn't that amazing? A man still fighting a war that had been over for 29 years. A man who was free to live his own life, instead choosing to live in what fundamentally was a prison of his own making. But as I believe you'll see as we open up uh, Romans 7 this morning, it's possible at the spiritual level for the Christian to fall into a very similar error. Before we move into Romans 7, though, let me first make it clear how I intend to, to tackle this this morning for Romans 7. You've heard that is a fairly complex and, and tightly argued portion of the, the Bible. So there are two ways that we could approach this. We could either take it apart and dissect it verse by verse, word by word. I just heard this week about somebody who took this approach to the whole book of Romans and has just recently finished it after 49 years. So that, gone by that, I'd actually have to be probably, I think, 115 before I finished my ministry. So that's, we're not going to do that. I don't want to do that because I think it would be kind of drawn out, intricate, and my fear would be not only that I would lose you in doing that, but I might get lost myself and I might never get out. So instead, we're going to take option two. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the main themes that are covered in Romans 7. We're going to look at the questions, basically, I think, that Romans 7 asks and answers. And as I see it, there are two interrelated themes covered in Romans chapter 7. Two questions that are addressed in this chapter. The what and the who question. So let's look first at the question, what? With the question that's being asked here is, what place, what place does the law have in the life of the Christian? If you see, as, as far as the, the law is concerned, it's been almost all negatives for Paul so far in Romans. The law, he says, is that which reveals sin, Romans 3.20. That which provokes sin, Romans 7, verse 8. That which leads to God, God's wrath, Romans 4.15. That which condemns the sinner, Romans 3.19. That's just a, a selection of Paul's negatives about the law. But all of this really climaxes in, in Romans 6.14 in the statement that really sums up I believe the heart of Paul's teaching on the law, that Christians are not under law. 
Christians are not under law, as Paul makes clear here in Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament. He's consistent in this, either in terms of our justification, that is the way to righteousness, the way to, to being and living in a right relationship with God, or in terms of our sanctification, that is our living out of a holy life. No, rather, our justification is by grace. It is by grace. It is an undeserved gift of God's love accessed by faith, by our putting our trust in Christ's sin-bearing death for us. As there on the cross, there He, God, in human flesh, stood in our place, hung in our place, and paid the price of our sin. Romans 6.14 says, you are not under law, but under grace. And our sanctification, our way to a holy life, this is not by the law either. It is rather by the Spirit. The Spirit leads us into holiness as we live our lives yielded to God's Spirit. And this isn't so much stated outright here, but it is, I believe, what's clearly suggested and implied and Paul does state it outright elsewhere. For example, in Galatians 5, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. But what we have to try and understand, though we'll never be able, I think, fully to do so, we'll never really, where we're coming from, be able to fully grasp this, is just how shocking how scandalous these words, this teaching, would have been to the average first century Jew. For you see, to them, and it continues today, there's nothing more precious than the law of God. They built their individual lives, their community, their society around the law of God. As far as they were concerned, the law was the way to righteousness with God. Obedience to the law was the way to a holy life. And it was possible by obedience to the law to live a life pleasing to God. Why? Psalm 19 verse 10 says there of the law of God. His laws, it says, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. So, if this then is what God says of His law, what right these men, these Jews would think, has a man like Paul to denigrate the law? That would be the attack. And here in Romans 7, Paul answers this challenge. And he agrees that the law is precious, is good, and is spiritual. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. That it is not the law which creates sin and death, but rather that it's our fallen human nature which is the root cause of this. Again, in, in verse 14, but I am unspiritual. I am unspiritual. It's me, my sin, sold as a slave to sin. But then what, what Paul goes on to do, having said this, is to demonstrate that there are two wrong ways to respond to the law as a Christian, and that there is one right way to respond. And the first wrong approach is the approach 
of legalism. It's that which Paul deals with in in verse 1 to 6. Legalism. Legalism, where we misunderstand the purpose of the law, really just as the Jews did, and so we look to it. We look to our obedience to the law, or our obedience to our own kind of little law book, rule book that we make up. We look to this to bring us into a right relationship with God. We look to this to save us, to justify us, to prove that we're saved. And we look to this to lead us into a kind of life which is pleasing to God, into a life of holiness. We think this is the way. But using marriage, the marriage relationship as his illustration, what Paul says to us is that as a wife is released from the marriage bond once her husband dies, so then when we put our faith in Jesus, when we by faith unite ourselves to Jesus, so then as he died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin, the penalty of the law, Well, we by faith share in his death. In the in Jesus, in Christ, by faith, the power of sin and the condemnation that the law brings is broken. So for a Christian then today to live as if their standing with God depends on our adherence to a code, be that the Old Testament law or or some concoction of rules and regulations that we come up with today as our part of our church culture. If we make that what matters, rather than accepting that our standing before God is secured solely and forever by our faith relationship with Christ, or for a Christian to live condemned by our failure to climb towards, by our efforts to live a holy life pleasing to God, condemned by failure, rather than accepting that holiness is, above all, a heavenly gift that God gives to us in Christ. And that we will grow into this life by living our lives yielded to the Spirit of God, always in the knowledge, living it, and but always knowing as we live this life and at times fail, at times fall short, as we always will, but knowing that God's forgiveness won by Christ covers all our shortcomings. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, that's what it says, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But for a Christian today to live as a legalist, rather than living a full Christian life, trusting only in the grace of God, led by the Spirit of God, this is a tragedy. It is a true tragedy. But we'll touch a little bit more on this a bit later. But there's another possible wrong approach to the law of God, you know, the commandments and all the different things that is very much a mirror image of, in the sense of it's very much a reaction to the legalism we've just talked about. And that is license. Now, what we're talking about here are people, Christians, who far from living in some way still under the domination of the law, still thinking it's, it's their job by their obedience to make themselves right with God. Christians who instead decide they're going to go to the opposite extreme, 
who understand and interpret Paul's teaching here in such a way as to reject the law altogether. And so say that the, the Old Testament lifestyle demands made by God of the people of God, the commands of God, that all of this has got no place in the Christian life. And you see, in Paul's time, this was taken on to the, the ultimate level, where, where at that point, some Christians or people who said they were Christians were saying, listen, sin doesn't matter anymore in Christ. We can sin all we want. We can do whatever we want because God will forgive. His grace in Christ will cover us no matter what we do. So just live how you like. That's what we, we find really at the beginning of, of Romans 6 with Paul's response to this being that this is ridiculous, that this is outrageous. And it is because it takes no account of our love for Christ. It takes no account of the fact that a Christian is spiritually reborn as they put their faith in Christ. So how then can a people who claim to love a Savior who died to pay the penalty of sin, how can a people who by their faith have been given a new spiritual nature in Christ, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, how can such a people easily sin, easily break God's command, presume upon God's grace? Now, I want to say there are not many, if, if any, Christians who would go this far today, who would blatantly try to use Paul's teaching as a license to live as they like. But you know, there are Christians around today. And at times, it seems like a significant number who have reacted to the old legalism of the past and who do seem to think that many of the commands of God, of the laws of God, are of little relevance to them. All that doesn't really matter. We don't need to bother with any of that. But as long as they are loving, that's what matters. As long as in each and every situation they seek to do what love demands, that's enough. That'll do. But you know, what a mess that can actually get us into. How easily in our sin we can try to pass off as loving what's actually really about our desires, our weaknesses, doing whatever we want. But again, as Paul makes clear here in Romans 7, again, the problem isn't with the law. It's never been with the law. The problem lies in sin. And the problem lies in the weakness of our human nature, which makes us so susceptible to sin. So how can ignoring the law, how can what so often boils down to following our own desires, how can we ever imagine that this is a right God-honoring way to live? Those are two, I believe, wrong Christian responses to the law. First, legalism, taking on the burden of the law once more, deciding that we've got to make ourselves right by the way that we live. And then license, deciding that the law has no relevance whatsoever, doesn't matter. I don't need to look too closely at what God asks or demands as long as I'm loving 
The law's got no relevance whatsoever to me. The right response, I believe, though, the right approach to the law and to the commands of God throughout His Word is what I would describe as law-fulfilling freedom. Now, now, what I mean by that when I say that is the Christian who's very clear about the fact that they have been set free from the law in terms of it being the way to righteousness with God. Because that, as we've said, is a gift of God's grace made, accept, made accessible to us through faith in Christ. Or of it being the way as we live in obedience to the law, to holiness here and now. No, we don't, because we know that that is the work of the Spirit. In terms of these things, the law never worked and never will. Verse 5 says, When we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. So in Christ then, we died to the law. In Christ, we died to that old way of living where we looked to God's law for blessing. In Christ, we were set free from the burden of trying to please God by our perfect obedience to Him. And in Christ, by faith in Him, we were raised. We were spiritually reborn to live the life of righteousness in Him. That is the life of Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, righteousness in Christ. Verse 6 says, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So now you see, now for the Christian, having been set free from the burden of living under the law, we are now able to see the law for what it is, that it is spiritual and it is good, rightly understood. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. Verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We see that in itself, sin apart, it is good. And also, we see its true purpose. That is not to save us, not that, not to make us holy, not that either, but rather to guide us, used in partnership with the Holy Spirit, then into the kind of holy living that pleases God. It's about the law of God, the Word of God, the commands of God, helping to lead us into actually the life of the Spirit. So you see, for a Christian, truly living the Christian life. Obeying God's law, obeying God's commands is no longer a burden that's forced upon us that we fulfill out of fear of failure. But rather, it becomes a privilege that we now fulfill in love. We do it in love and it brings us joy knowing that when we fail, as we will, we always will, but knowing that there is always forgiveness and always a new beginning in Christ. That's the, the what question then. What place does the law have in the place of a Christian? The commands of God. What place do they have? 
it finds its proper place as we fulfill our lives and live our lives in law-fulfilling freedom. Set free in Christ. Set free from slavery to the law or slavery to sin. Set free to serve Christ, to live with Him as Lord. And as part of our service, we obey God's commands. We obey God's law. But we do it now as an act of love. And it does bring us joy to please our God. But let's look now at the who question. And that is, in Romans 7, and particularly in the, the latter part of it, there is extensive use there of the personal pronoun. So who is then this I, the me, that Paul refers to here? And let me just say there's been an incredible volume of writing and debate among some of the greatest minds down through the centuries about this. And, and what this boils down to is, is this the experience, this experience of almost spiritual torment that Paul sets before us here, is this ex the experience of someone prior to becoming a Christian, that is, someone unregenerate, or is this ex the experience of someone since becoming a Christian, since being made regenerate? Now, those who go down the unregenerate line who feel that this is Paul describing his own or, or someone else's uh, or even universal human experience pre-coming to faith, pre-salvation, their main argument seems to be that it would be impossible to think of a born-again, spiritual, spiritually alive and mature Paul describing an experience such as this, as his experience. This kind of spiritual struggle. How could born-again Paul, it's argued, who's now a slave of Christ and is ready to describe himself as much, also say that he is a slave of sin? How could Paul, the Christian, cry out for deliverance when, example, in Romans chapter 5, he's so eloquently there in that chapter described the peace and joy and freedom and new hope of the people of God. So it's argued then that Paul must be describing his pre-conversion, unregenerate spiritual struggle with sin and the law, etc., etc. That's one argument. I've got to say that for me, the arguments against this, I think, are stronger by far. I mean, for example, it says of this person here in verse 15 to 19 that they ardently want to do what is good in terms of living in obedience to God and His law. Now, is that true of someone who does not know Christ, who's unregenerate? And how can an unregenerate person whose sinful nature makes them hostile to it. How can they then say that they delight in God's law? Verse 22, he says, In my inner being, I delight in God's law. So is this then Paul describing his own, and by extension, every Christian's spiritual struggle? Is this the experience of the regenerate Christian? There's a lot going for this. 
what we've already talked of, the, the attitude to God's law that we find here, plus the, the self-image that, that, that we find described here. For Paul says of this individual that he is unspiritual in verse 14 and declares in verse 18 that nothing good lives in me in my sinful nature. Now, you see, that kind of self-image, that isn't true of the average non-Christian. I don't think it is, who more often, instead of having that kind of downward look on themselves, is more often self-righteous and and self-confident. Now, that kind of self-image, I think, is more in line with the Christian who's been spiritually humbled and made aware of their sin. And that's how they feel when they sin again. That's how awful. And then there's Paul's longing here for for final deliverance. There's the cry of the wretched man in in verse 24 with with this cry expressing surely a heart desire for full and final deliverance. Well, would we expect this of someone who's unregenerate? Surely not. Surely this is the cry of a spiritually reborn, regenerate believer who's broken by their sin. And so what we have then dissected and and really laid out for us here is the conflict between flesh and the Spirit, which to some extent is the normal Christian experience, where we know ultimate victory in Christ. We're in Christ, the final and dominating power of sin and the law is broken, and yet we're as long as we live on this earth, in this physical, fleshly body, where still the remnants of the sinful nature remain alive within us, and sin still can influence and draw us an impact on our lives. That's what we have here, the continuing conflict between the flesh and the spirit that is part of the experience of every believer. Galatians 5.17 lays it out. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. Now, I would say that I believe that that this kind of experience, this kind of conflict, is to some degree the experience of the normal regenerate Christian. I would say that to some degree. And until fairly recently, I've accepted that this is what we have outlined for us in totality here in Romans 7. But, you know, as I've looked at this recently, I've begun to question some of that. Certainly, Paul here is talking about a regenerate Christian. He is. But is he talking about a normal, healthy, mature Christian? Is he doing that? For earlier in Romans 6, verse 17 and 18, it said of believers that they used to be slaves to sin, but have now been set free from sin and have become slaves of God and righteousness. But here you see in chapter 7, the believer that's spoken of here is declared still to be right now the slave and prisoner of sin, Romans 7, 14 and 23. And while Galatians 5, we said, does talk similarly about the, the spiritual conflict between the, the flesh and the spirit, yet Galatians 5 promises victory right now to those who walk in the Spirit. It says we'll have that battle, but we can know victory. Whereas Romans 7 seems to talk of like an almost continuous, heavy experience 
of defeat. And, and then there is the matter of the Holy Spirit. One writer, Handley Moore, he talks about the, what he describes as the absolute and eloquent silence of Romans 7 regarding the Holy Spirit. That in fact, the Holy Spirit is mentioned only once in Romans 7, whereas the law is mentioned 31 times. Now, I want to say the conclusion that all of this brings me to is that the specific spiritual experience that Paul unfolds for us here in Romans 7 is that of a regenerate Christian, but it's not that of a mature and spiritually healthy Christian. We don't need to live like this or remain like this. Rather, this is the typical experience of a legalistic Christian. And particularly, and this relates to, to Paul's situation, particularly of those Judaizers, those Jewish Christians who were so much a thorn in the flesh for him in, its, in his ministry. That is, Jews who had, it seems, or, or so they claimed, who had put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but who weren't living, wholly trusting in Christ, in His grace, for salvation. Or who weren't living in full reliance on the Holy Spirit to bring them into holiness. Rather, what they were doing is, they were trusting in Jesus plus obedience to the law to win them salvation. They were looking to the Spirit plus obedience to the law, to the ritual laws of circumcision, adherence to the food laws of the Old Testament, etc. They were looking to these things together to make them holy in God's sight. So these were Christians then who were not enjoying their inheritance, who were not in living in the freedom that was theirs in Christ. Well, has this got any implication or application for us, but I believe it has. I do. That it is possible today, as we've said, for Christians to be legalists. It's still possible for Christians to live in bondage to a rule book of, of their or someone else's making, rather than to live in a grace relationship with Jesus that then leads to an obedience to God that's joyful and a love offering to Him. And John Stott, he says here of this kind of Christian, he says they show signs of new birth in their love for the church and the Bible, yet their religion is law, not gospel, flesh, not spirit, the oldness of slavery to rules and regulations, not the newness of freedom through Jesus Christ. They are like Lazarus when he first emerged from the tomb, alive, but still bound hand and foot. They need to add to their life liberty. So I would say, out of all this, let's determine today not to be that kind of abnormal Christian. Rather, let's live what is the normal, mature, spiritually healthy Christian life. That is, let's live in the realm of grace. Let's live 
yielded to the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, seeking more of the Spirit of God, and so led by the Spirit into true Christian holiness. Let's live that kind of Christian life, which is, I believe, God's will for us. Let's come and let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will give us understanding of your word, that you want us to take and to use the whole of your word. But Lord, you want it to be not in any sense a bondage or a burden. You want it to be about a relationship of grace, a life in the Spirit. We're in love. We're led to live a life that pleases you. But living that life is a joy and not a burden. A life where we will sin because that's our nature, but where we can sin far less and where when we sin, we can know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You don't want your people to be living under a burden. You want the Christian life to be something that's life-giving and that is joyful. Lord, may that be our experience of you today and throughout our life together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.